Welcome to Conversations at Mount Vernon's Washington Library. The Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington at Mount Vernon serves as the premier resource for all who are interested in the study of George Washington and the revolutionary and founding eras. Every year, the library hosts numerous scholars who share our dedication to generate and disseminate new knowledge about all things Washington. The library's founding director, Dr. Douglas Bradburn, has the opportunity to sit down with these scholars to explore their research, and we are so excited to share those conversations with you. Today's guest is Chris Jurgens. He is a PhD candidate in early modern European history at Florida State University. His dissertation is titled, Chasing Fabius, the Revolutionary Army of Hessen Castle and its Mission in America, 1776 to 1784. In addition to his fellowship at the Washington Library during the 2015-2016 academic year, Chris has received numerous research fellowships at other institutions. At Florida State, he founded and directs the school's Undergraduate Research Opportunity Program. Today, he'll discuss his dissertation, and you'll learn about the European soldier trade that led to Hessians being involved in the American Revolution, how Hessian soldiers perceived Washington, and the real story of the famous Battle of Trenton. And now, Mr. Jurgens and Dr. Bradburn. All right, welcome back. This is Doug Bradburn. I'm the founding director of the Fred W. Smith National Library for the Study of George Washington here at a beautiful Mount Vernon. And I'm joined today by uh, Mr. Chris Jurgens, who is currently a doctoral candidate at Florida State University. And uh, Chris has spent the last month or so here at the library as one of our research fellows. He's working on his dissertation. And I appreciate that he's here to sit down and, and talk a little bit about his work and, and history in general. So welcome, Chris. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So Chris and I met each other back in the day when I was at Binghamton University. He was an undergrad at Binghamton. I didn't know you then, or did I know you then? No, not as an undergrad. Okay, good. I, I don't want to have forgotten <laughs> anyone. Uh, but you were a Europeanist. Mm -hmm. You still are a Europeanist. Um, but you're working on a project which is very important to the story of George Washington, the story of uh, the American Revolution. Why don't you tell everybody what is the well, the dissertation project you're working on at Florida State? Okay, sure. So I work on the Hessians in the American Revolution. So as you may or may not know, there about a third of Great Britain's troops in North America during the American War for Independence were actually contracted German troops, and they came from six different states. Uh, the negotiations started in 1775, and by 76, most of the treaties are, were signed, um, and. German troops uh, were shipped off in English and Dutch transports to the New World. Okay. Well, so everybody who knows the Revolutionary War has heard of the Hessians. They had a, a particularly nasty reputation amongst the Patriots, at least, and we can talk about that. Um, but before we get into that, why don't we go, why don't we take a step back a little bit and talk about, um, you know, your project itself. So why did you get interested in writing about the Hessians? Uh, uh, and, uh, and, and in general, how does that relate to your desire to, you know, teach history, write history, and become a historian? Yeah, that's a, um, an interesting question and one I wish where I had a really creative answer. <laughs> uh, well. But really, it's, it, it was mostly an accident. Um, mm -hmm. I got interested in early modern Europe working at Binghamton, mm -hmm. and uh, it was kind of intrigued by the French Revolution and a lot of the debates surrounding 
kind of military reform and military innovation. You worked with Howard Brown at Binghamton, his great historian of the uh, military in the French Revolution, the state in the French Revolution. Right. But I had uh, I have native German language uh, skills, ah. and I was looking for a way to use that. Native German language skills. So how did you come across it? You're a native German. Uh, no, well, I'm an American, but I, mm. <laughs> I grew up in, in Germany the mm. first 10 years of my life, mm -hmm. uh, attending regular German school. Mm -hmm. And so I have fluency, thank God, because I don't think, I don't really have a language brain otherwise. Uh, okay. So, right. well, so it's, you have it's good that. that I had it from birth. <laughs> <laughs> that is good. So you had the German, mm -hmm. you were interested in early modern European history, which the historiography of early modern Europe is the greatest, probably, historiography uh, in modern history out there. It's, it's rich, it's challenging. Um, it's it's got its own wonderful history. So is that what attracted you? The kind of the richness of the study there, or was it the stories themselves that were more? You felt like they were ones that you wanted to tell. I think it's more about the the stories, really. Yeah. Um, kind of, I guess, what you could term experiential history. I mean, what are what are these actors actually? Mm. How are they experiencing these episodes in our in our past? Mm -hmm. uh, and wars are these great moments of crisis where basically everything is put to the test. Mm -hmm. uh, at every level of society, and it's it's just a really fascinating, uh, fascinating subject. Yeah. So, do you do you see yourself approaching a war from a war and society perspective, or more of what we think of as a classic military historian, tactics and battles? And I mean, the most of the work that has been done on the Hessians in the past, kind of in the nineteenth century, actually, kind of the military mm -hmm. histories of, of Hessian involvement, focused on the campaigns. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot to be corrected there. Uh, a lot of good work mm -hmm. that was done, though. Um, and in general, the, the stakes for those questions are relatively low. Uh, so what are the big books on the Hessians? Right, so that's actually that's an interesting interesting question. So the first books came out in the 19th century, but they were heavily colored by German nationalism. Yeah. And so you had these guys writing like Friedrich Kapp and Max von Eiking. Mm -hmm. um, and Friedrich Kapp actually was a failed 1848 revolutionary who lived in exile in New York yeah. for a number of years. Um, and so he was writing a lot about yeah. kind of German-American connections. With the great and German historians of the 19th century, we're connecting the whole notion of the nation mm -hmm. to the science of history itself. Right. So the birth of the science of history and the birth of the German nation are very closely connected together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And especially in Friedrich Kapp's case, his, his work is probably the best known on, on kind of the soldier trade of the 18th century. He also wrote a, a biography of uh, Johann uh, de Kalb. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, um, Steuben as well. Uh, so he liked these kinds of characters, but he clearly uh, it very very openly favored one side of this conflict and and let that really influence his narrative. Mm. And so the story of the Hessians for Friedrich Kapp not was, an American fan. No, he was an American. Oh, he fan. was. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and so he he tended to favor the Americans who saw uh, the the promise of this new land and and I new see. Republican of course. virtue. Right, right, okay. Right. And so the Hessians are actually. I mean, they're, they're, they're Hessians the are victims of the British. Well, or they're they're of these principalities that don't represent the nation. Right, so the prince is basically this evil obstacle to, to unification and to yeah. proper nationhood. Right, um, And his people, yeah. the, the Hessians actually doing the fighting, are these, you know, the poor oppressed masses who are, who right. are forced into this military system. Right, okay, great. And, and then the foil is the American nation-building patriots, right. you know, who have this love of country, patriotism, yeah. and, and uh, I see, and uh, the, the will of the people sort of thing. Exactly. Great. Okay, so, so, so you've got some classic studies in the 19th century. What else do we have to understand the, the history of the Hessians in the American Revolution? So since then there's been some work done mostly kind of by uh, kind of genealogical work. So a lot of people who are interested in Hessians for the sake of finding out their ancestry. And mm -hmm. uh, so there's been a lot of interest in you know which regiment was where and when and why. 
Um, and so is there a patriotic society for Hessians in the Revolution, or do they join the Sons of the American Revolution, or in America? Or what do we know Actually, about that? Actually, not to my knowledge. There yeah. is there is a great little association in Pennsylvania called the the Johannes Schwalm uh, Historical Association, mm. and they publish a journal called the Hessian, um, and it comes out uh, yearly. And they have, I mean, it's it's academics and and uh, kind of these genealogical studies who, yeah. who, who like to publish in there. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of really good work uh, mm. being done there, but it tends to not be, it, it tends to not address the questions that historians specifically are interested in. Okay, right. So what you see then is a massive gap right. in, the, in the history of the revolution, in the history of Germany mm -hmm. in the 18th century or the German states in the 18th century. What, do you, what, what are we calling it? Is it the Holy Roman Empire? What's the Holy Roman Empire? Yeah, yeah. So, so the history of the Holy Roman Empire. So, uh, Historians, of course, who go out and try to get jobs ultimately have to usually, they pick their regions and their countries. For you, uh, 18th century European history, is that a field? It's early modern European history. Is that is a teaching field that you'd be looking at? Right, it's it's early modern Europe, but I'm hoping that with a you know a transatlantic connection there, yeah. uh, that there's some more opportunities to, yeah, to and your training in Yeah, and you're training in colonial American history as mm -hmm. well, and obviously yeah. with this project, it's a a great transatlantic story, it's a great comparative history, uh, and of course, uh, an early American history. Yes, absolutely. Uh, very exciting. Okay, so so you have a gap that you want to fill. Um, you have the German, but the problem with the German that you have is that it's modern German, right? I mean, I imagine the records that you're trying to deal with are not written uh, uh, in the German that you learned. Right, that's an interesting <laughs> obstacle to, to working on early modern Germany, Yeah, uh, is I mean, German paleography, modern paleography is, is you know, a subject unto itself. Hmm. Um, Germans predominantly... We'll save that for another podcast. Oh, sure. <laughs> the German paleography podcast. Well, so uh, specifically in terms of the project, um, the, the records yeah. that I'm dealing with, the, the German, the, the language they're using is similar enough. I mean, the spelling will be different. The grammatical constructions are a little different. But there's honestly, there's not, there's not a big gap yeah. there in terms yeah. of understanding. Where the real difficulty is is 18th century handwriting because mm. the Germans actually used, I mean, it's not only a matter of kind of looking at old handwritings the way we think of it for right. Americans. Right. It's actually a whole different alphabet that they're using. Yeah. Um, so what's the alphabet called? So the most common name is Kuchenschrift, which is from the Latin for, for crooked uh, um, because well, all of the letters are slanted uh, mm -hmm. at, a, at a consistent angle. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very formulaic and once you learn it, it's, it's really easy to read. Um, and what about the typeface? Uh, mm -hmm. 18th century so their Prince, typeface German is, Prince. is that different as well? What's that yes. called? It's called Faktua, and that is the uh, easy name. You know, it's that that Gothic lettering that's yeah. you know very recognizable, but obviously it doesn't lend itself to handwriting. And so they came up with this new alphabet for the handwriting. Mm. Um, and what is the modern handwriting called? The modern is just it's just cursive Latin script. Okay, um, right. So it's the same letters. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. The same alphabet. Obviously. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, but when did that change come about? Uh, well, Kurenschrift was used all the way through the First World War. Mm. Um, it was still being taught in schools. Then they had a simplification um, called Sutterlin. Um, and really, the, the Latin script doesn't come about until uh, Hitler, actually. He, he institutes a change where in, in 41, all books are going to be published uh, or printed in uh, you know, standard Latin uh, lettering, and all script will be standard uh, Why? Latin script. Why did Hitler do this? Was this part of his conquest of Europe uh, to, That's to the, help? prevailing theory. Yeah, to yeah. help kind of integrate mm -hmm. the Germans into these conquered lands and peoples. And yeah, it's modernization and it's about eliminating kind yeah. of a really unnecessary barrier to communication. I mean, Germany was, you know, it was obviously a very federal state in the 19th century. It was, there was different still 
German languages in different regions, as we know. I mean, in Austria, of course, obvious, and others. So were other places already adopting the Latin script, and it was more kind of unifying? Who was kind of leading the, the movement there? The change to the Latin script? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that was pretty much imposed from, from the top down. Yeah. Um, and so you had, I mean, obviously they, they had a control of education, and so they just kind of phased it out. And so you had older generations that had gone to elementary school in yeah. the well, First World War still writing that way. Well, it's, we think of Napoleon, of course, as creating things in, in Napoleonic era that then mm -hmm. stuck, despite the fact that Napoleon didn't, <laughs> right? right? Um, you know, the, the, the code, the law mm -hmm. code being the one people point to. I hadn't really, uh, I, maybe I'm just an ignorant fool, but I've never thought about you know things that Hitler changed that stuck I mean we know about the Volkswagen of course right. but the but Autobahns the, and yeah and the, the Autobahns yeah so the script I mean it's that um, that's an interesting phenomenon okay uh, back to the main event mm -hmm. all right so uh, what are the sort well let's let's get back okay so so you see an opportunity there's a big gap in this story what so what is the question that you're trying to answer in your work so that's kind of changed a little bit over the years, just as I've become more aware of how large the gap is, what yeah. kind of shape it's taking, yeah. that sort of thing. Um, but basically yeah. what I'm interested in is, is the survival strategies of a middling Holy Roman Imperial state at a time where we tend to talk about the centralization of states, the centralization of power. Mm -hmm. um, so 19th century, early 19th century, you know, we're looking at France, we're looking at England and the processes that happening there. And we kind of assume that that's the normal process right. of, of modernization. Right, that's right. And modernization is centralization it's right. creating efficiencies bringing the localities under the thumb of the center yeah, yeah exactly and what's happening in Hessen Kassel uh, which is the the main Hessian state that we that we talked about for the, for mm -hmm. the uh, American Revolution they're the largest supplier of troops uh, they're the largest of the six states that contract troops um, something else is, is going on there mm -hmm. um, and so basically I'm looking at the soldier trade in the context of this kind of the geopolitics of a small European state okay good so it's a big question uh, with a nice tight sort of place that you're talking about over a period of time. So what is the soldier trade? So the soldier trade was a process that started, uh, I mean, much earlier. Uh, it was really, uh, its most famous episode probably is the Thirty Years' War, um, where you had a lot of military contractors who hired themselves out to princes or kings. Mm -hmm. um, and so they would go and recruit troops, uh, pay for their upkeep, train them and send them to battle, and they would be reimbursed by uh, princes or kings. Mm. So private... Um, so it was private military private military groups. Yeah. So the most famous is, is like one Blackstein. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's an age old thing. Right. right. So you, you, you come to the, the Thirty Years' War. Of course, is expanding. Mm -hmm. It's growing. It's there's wars going on. It's ongoing. There's a regular need for troops, and the, and and these sort of people invent themselves to, to, much. to meet demand. Yeah. There's, uh, I mean, the most famous example is Wallenstein, who was a German general, uh, actually well, come from, coming from Czechoslovakia, or modern day. Bohemian. Uh, Czech, yeah, he, he's Bohemian, yeah. um, but German culturally. Well, that's what the Germans and, say. Well, sure. Polacks, like myself, <laughs> uh, the Poles, I mean, well, come on, they, it's Bohemian. Like, name like Wallenstein, I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> but, uh, so he ended up, he ended up uh, working for uh, the Holy Roman Emperor. Yeah. Uh, and he raised an army. I mean, at, at its height, it was an army of 100,000 men, which, I mean, for the time was, was enormous. Yeah. Um, and he made a boatload of money. Uh, he arranged a very advantageous contract where at some point he was basically building his own kingdom in northern Europe mm. from uh, lands he was conquering from the emperor's enemies. Mm. Um, 
So it ends up not going so, well for so him. So it wasn't a religious war for him? It was, it a, was not, it no. It was a <laughs> war of personal ambition. Right, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he ends up getting getting assassinated by his own employer because they uh, was a little too ambitious mm. <laughs> for the role that he was supposed to play. All right, flash forward but, to the 18th anyway, century. So what happens in the 18th yeah. century? So you have this history of this very lucrative soldier trade, and you have mm-hmm. uh, the decentralized states of Europe. So you have uh, you know, the lands of Germany, Switzerland, and Italy, uh, which do not have large standing armies, which don't have a lot of uh, kind of unified foreign policy, mm-hmm. which means you have a lot of people who are not being conscripted into kind of the growing nationalizing armies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's obviously very fertile recruiting ground for these military enterprises. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a very lucrative business. And by the 17th, uh, by the late 17th century and by the early 18th century, uh, the, the business model has changed. Thus, They're no longer hiring private contractors, but the German princes themselves have set themselves up as mm-hmm. these military enterprisers. So the princes themselves see this as a possible revenue stream. Exactly. They're the ones who, these are their subjects after mm-hmm. all. I mean, why would you let some other random person come in and recruit them away for death and destruction? And they also get all the money for it yeah. when uh, it can become a state industry. Exactly, and so this is something that the German princes increasingly, increasingly do. Yeah. Um, they set themselves up as the enterprisers. They use the the mechanisms of the sca- of the state to conscript people into the army. Okay, um, and so that brings about some interesting changes. What um, time period are we in now? Eighteen. So this is mid eighteenth century. Seventeen forties. Seventeen. You have a major yeah. war in the seventeen forties. Well, we have uh, the Jacobite uprising in right. England. Okay. Um, Hessians get hired for that. Do they? Mm-hmm. Is that the first time the the British uh, hire? Germans. They have some minor. Well, I guess not because you have a German them. prince is essentially right. Uh, the king. The, the Hanoverians are right during uh, the Hanoverian right during the Hanoverian kings period. I mean, you do have the the Hanoverian soldiers are being used kind of very liberally right. by these kings. Right. And in a way that sort of mimics the soldier trade, but technically they have full dominion over them because they are the, the yeah. elector of Hanover. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's not quite the same. But then by the by the by the Jacobite rebellion by from the forty five. Uh, they're hiring German soldiers. Right, and what's different about this now, now that the princes are running the show, um, what tends to happen is you don't have, you know, you don't have a military enterpriser who's recruiting individuals and contracting them into his army and then renting them out this way. Mm. Um, so what's actually happening is that the princes are just setting up their own standing armies mm. and then they rent out entire regiments the way that they would send them to battle if they were actually involved in the war. Right. Um, and so you have the, I mean, you have the officer corps, you have the chain of command, exactly as you would have it in your own army, it's just someone else is now at the helm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And that's a that's a major transformation happening in the 18th century. Okay, all right. So, so when the the American rebellion breaks out, mm-hmm. uh, and the, and the British are looking around to figure out how they're going to put this down, where they're going to get the troops for it, the resources for it, it's it's an obvious thing to look to Europe to find troops. Yes. Um, what's actually interesting is that, uh, which is not too widely known. Uh, the British actually are looking at a military solution much earlier than Lexington and Concord. Mm. Um, so already in 1774, they send emissaries to Russia, actually, to hire 20,000 Russian soldiers from Catherine the Great, uh, who is not interested at all. Um, and there's some evidence from, from the correspondence that we have on the British side uh, that the, the incentive behind using Russians was that there would be such a cultural and language barrier that they would be more reliable soldiers for the kind of mission they were anticipating mm. in North America. Mm. Which, of course, at this point is not all out, out, outright war, but rather kind of a show of force. Well, police action a at police the very action, least. Right. Um, but yeah, politically completely un, uh, unsound. I mean, yes. <laughs> uh, to send foreign troops, mm-hmm. alien troops, into, you know, uh, into the countryside in Massachusetts would have been what they were imagining. 
uh, in Puritan New England, uh, you know, or slightly less Puritan New England, uh, it would have been an outrage to have all these Absolutely. Greek or uh, Russian Orthodox Absolutely. troops. Yeah, the, I mean, unbelievable. The American presses hear about this, and they're already uh, yeah. they're already you know they use this to their advantage in basically propaganda about how the how the state is going to send these Russians. And yeah. by the time that the news changes and that the they're actually hiring Hessians. They, they simply change the word. Uh, so yeah. the story is the same about these yeah. these you know yeah. merciless mercenary troops who are coming, but you know so oh, they're not Russians; they're Hessians now. Yes, right. Okay, so uh, so how many troops do do the British send uh, over the course of the whole American War? So that's a that number that exact number is kind of tricky to get at because mm -hmm. of basically early modern uh, European accounting practices. Yeah, record keeping. <laughs> but also a lot, of, a lot of transports going back and forth to kind of replenish uh, desertions or, or those lost to, to sickness or right. combat. Right. But you're looking at about 30,000 troops. So, all right, so you mentioned there's six different states mm -hmm. that we use the term Hessians to describe them all. Um, the Americans in the revolution used the term Hessians, mm -hmm. that's why we use it. And I think it's, you know, it's a useful short term, uh, shorthand, but Let's do justice to, to the diversity of these soldiers. Where, where did they come from? What are the six states, and who was relatively more important than the others? So of these six states, the largest was hessen Kassel, which is the one that I looked at in particular. Um, had about 350,000 people uh, in the late 18th century, and they sent about two-thirds of... 350,000 people mm -hmm. uh, in, in, at the time. That would have been approximately the size of uh, Virginia the colony of Virginia at the time of the rebellion. Maybe a little bigger. Maybe a little bigger. Anyway, yeah. Uh, one of the other... How many did they send? A so third? About, uh, about two-thirds. Of a total number of what? Of 30,000. Of 30,000, okay. And then uh, uh, another one of the states can be designated as Hessian because actually uh, the, the kind of the, the, the ancient land of Hessen was, was a much larger state in the Holy Roman Empire, but Due to various succession so crises, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but the the state splintered, yeah. and so by yeah. by the by the late eighteenth century, you have uh, two two of the largest Hessian states both send troops, and it's Hessen Kassel and the smaller Hessen Hanau, which is right next door. Okay, I mean it's actually run the the Prince of Hessen Hanau is actually the son of the Prince of Hessen Kassel. Right. Okay. So the Hessians are so that's the Hessians why they're send, called the Hessians. Exactly. So they mostly, send most. They're of mostly them. coming from those places. Yeah. Okay. But then you also have some troops coming from Anhalt Zerbst, which was a, a very small principality. They only sent a few hundred. Mm. Um, some from uh, were they specialists in something, or it was it, it literally just they, they saw an advantage. The yeah. British were they were they were so desperate for troops yeah. that uh, they would right. pretty much take anyone. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Obviously by by British military standards, but it's you know right. from from any land. Yeah. Um, there was also the, the Brunswickers uh, who became quite famous for the uh, um, Burgoyne's campaign. Mm -hmm. Most of his troops were Brunswickers. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also had Unspach uh, um, Bayreuth was another small state that sent some troops. Okay. So you can, you can tell why I don't tell you these names. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know German, so um, yes, I, yes, I'm hearing this. But, but they are diverse, yeah. they are diverse, that's true. That's interesting, yeah. Uh, and uh, a diversity of religions, or are they all Protestants? There's a, there is a diversity of religions um, in the individual states, but also within those individual okay. states, there, yeah. there was actually a, a, a large degree of a religious toleration. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the muster rolls, it's kind of interesting. You can see that uh, that's one of the categories, which the U.S. Army still does today. I mean, it's the, the religion of the right. individual soldier, right. and so you can check that. Do they have chaplains um, with each regiment? They do have chaplains. Do they have mm -hmm. uh, camp followers? So they send they do. women with them? They do. In fact, uh, in Hessen-Kassel, there, uh, there was some debate about how many women to send. 
because um, there was some concern that well, which makes perfect sense when you send people a couple thousand miles away, uh, a lot of divorces follow uh, back in back in Germany. Yeah. Um, so they wanted to kind of assuage that 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 problem, and so they actually allowed uh, each company. I forget. I think it's about six women get to go per company, mm-hmm. and so that ends up being a, a pretty some, a pretty decent amount of, of camp followers. Yeah. That, well, that's yeah, that's an extraordinary, and, and no one's done any research on the Hessian camp followers. Not to my knowledge, but that's it, it's hard to get at because yeah. um, yeah. the records just aren't as yeah. as complete for that. All right, so let's, before we get into the story you tell, let's talk about the records. Where are the records? Where do they exist to reconstruct these stories? So thankfully for uh, you know American students working on this, there was a lot of interest in the revolution at the turn of the century and a lot of these... The turn of which century? Uh, uh, 19th into 20th. <laughs> <laughs> right. Not the um, turn of the 21st century. Right. Yeah, right. That's, um, no, that's so you right. had a lot of collections being bought from Europe. Well, in America at that time, to put this in the context of the German, you know, great historians of the 19th century, it's the late 19th century where American historians are really professionalizing. Mm-hmm. You know, they're creating the first PhD programs and they're creating the first archives, uh, you know, that, uh, along professional standards and amassing things, transcribing things, translating things. Uh, and and that's the that's the interest you're seeing around the turn of the century. The American Historical Association, I think, is founded in what 1890 or something like that. And, and so that you know, the United States has only been around 100 years at that point. So a lot of the history is going to the, the interesting history is the Revolution. Yeah. So there were a lot of libraries buying up these things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Bancroft had a big collection of, of revolutionary documents and Hessian documents in particular. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. The William Clements Library up at, at the University of Michigan yeah. bought up a lot of collections. And yeah. they have, I mean, they have original papers there that I mean, Germans no longer have access to. So there's there's a mm-hmm. lot of interesting stuff on this side of the Atlantic. And not a lot of that at the Clements is published. I mean, no. It, but it is. Is it all digitized now, or do you have to go there? No, you have to. You have to actually yeah. go there. Is it on microfilm, or you're using? Uh, no, the, you're using the, the original. The original. Is anything micro? filmed there in these uh, not to my knowledge Hessian, not the Hessian papers yeah. no it's the mm-hmm. von Junken papers yeah. some of it some of them have been published um, mm-hmm. especially for the for the campaigns in Virginia um, a lot of those letters yeah. and diary fragments have been published yeah the Clements is a great archive of mm-hmm. British uh, history uh, okay what else uh, the David Library has quite a bit but my my main archives are actually in in Hessen uh, in Germany mm. so there's actually a, the, the archive was built in 1938 um, Actually, by Hitler's government. <laughs> so so it, looks, where, <laughs> it was great continuity. Thank you. So where where is uh, where is Hessen in Germany? So it's pretty pretty smack dab in the center of Germany. Uh, so the the Hessian archives. West are, Germany or East Germany for us pre Cold War people. It West Germany. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's about an hour northeast of Frankfurt by okay, train. Sure. You'll get that's to the Hessian helpful. archives. That's helpful. I know what that is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, it's, it's a great building. It was originally it was designed as an as an archives building. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of a lot of thinking that went into this and so it's actually it's a great place to work I mean they have a great reading room uh, mm-hmm. a great you know, magazine what's the access there. like there do they let you make as many copies digitally as you want or how does it so the uh, how does it go the reading room is great the yeah. access hours are great the poll times are great there is no pictures and no digitization really? allowed by by people attending there really yeah. So you can you can make uh, a copia antrag, you know you can you can request copies to be made, uh, but mm-hmm. it's a relatively lengthy process and relatively expensive. Expensive. And yeah. so most people actually just sit there and transcribe the, the useful letters. Well, there's an advantage to that if you have the time and money to mm-hmm. be there, because then you actually have to read the stuff and take notes on right. it. I find, uh, you know, I've got hard drives full of pictures of documents that I'm never going to read. Uh, you know that are you know from Q you know for instance right. a place where you can make make your copies and 
Uh, and so there is a there is an efficiency probably in the in the working through of the documents, but it does it it, it does limit you. Yeah, it presents some some interesting challenges, uh, yeah. which is actually why I'm heading back to Germany this year. <laughs> uh, yeah. So how much more archival time do you think you need before the dissertation can be con declared? I don't know much done. How much time I need, but I can tell you, I'm giving myself two months. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> in Germany. Yeah. So yeah. we'll see if that's enough. All right. So uh, so you have sources all over the world. Uh, in, in great archives, it sounds like though. So it really is. These are the golden. These are the golden days for you, Chris, because you're going to be doing research. You're working on your own project here. So what is what is the some of the stories that you're trying to get at here? So one of the main threads that I follow here, and kind of these, as I said, the geopolitics of the small state. Right. So that's the how, overarching kind of mm -hmm. problem, right? Right. And, and so yeah, kind of the conventional wisdom is that the soldier trade is just one way that kind of these smaller principalities are, or are, uh, it's kind of a short, yeah, uh, 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 it's kind of a, a stopgap measure to fill up the treasuries in times of need. Mm. And basically, what I what I'd like to argue in my dissertation is that uh, while this may be true for some of the smaller principalities that are heavily in debt in the 18th century, and they're enlightened princes have been spending tons of money on building new castles for their mistresses and such. Mm. Uh, in Hessen Kassel, what's happening is very different. Um, but there's actually a concerted effort to create, I mean, they're kind of looking towards the future and they see this as their main lucrative export. Mm. Um, and there's, there's good reason to believe that, um, especially with these treaties that they're signing in 76. Because um, at, at first they, so they send, they end up sending about 20,000 troops, but they're, they're actually contracted for 13,000. Mm. So the, the difference is made up in the, the replacement that they send to the new world. Right. Um, and some of the transfers that happen. But there's clearly a concerted effort to continue this in the future. So they're actually using the money from the military system that they're that they're getting from England, and they're reinvesting it into this business. Mm. So in 1778, for example, they actually found their own military academy, mm -hmm. which for the early modern world is is remarkable enough. And the fact that it's happening in such a small German state is just unheard of. Mm. Um, and before then, officers would go and get you know, take some classes at the local colleges or universities. Um, but most of their their education would actually happen as ensigns with stationed with units at the front mm -hmm. um, and so now there's this this really this change with this kind of this this idea that you know officer education is something that should be happening in kind of a formalized setting that requires years of study mm. um, and so this is something that the american revolution actually makes possible for the state they now have the funds to actually to, mm. to follow this kind of a project mm. um, and there's good evidence that i mean that's kind of what makes hessen kassel an interesting state in the american uh, war for independence is while this is a great failure for for britain ultimately and a big waste of money uh, for the Hessians, this is a windfall. I mean, yeah. they end up they end up making a bunch of money. They, uh, uh, you know, their investments pay off for for decades to come. They have a, a you know an efficient military system that serves them well through the age of revolutions. Um, this is this is a story of success for them. But they stop being being involved in the soldier trade. They do. Um, they do towards uh, once Napoleon comes along. That does change dynamics for them a little bit, <laughs> to yeah. say to say to say the least. Because they're conquered. Um, they are conquered temporarily. Well, let me let me let me tell that, yeah. that story a little bit then. Yeah, so, yeah. I, I mean, a big part of the, this is is that they're using the soldier trade to build relationships with some of these other European states, and mm. specifically, they're looking to build a relationship with Britain. Right. Um, and this is something that they were very successful at because you figure, I mean, so the American Revolution that's a that's a failure for Britain, but in 1787 they sign another treaty with the Hessians for just as many troops because they're worried about war breaking out in Europe. Mm. So clearly, they were satisfied with with the service they got, yeah. and right. uh, you know, we're looking to continue this in the future. Well, okay, um, yeah, all right. So, so, so they, they were allies with Britain mm -hmm. again during during the French Wars of Revolution. Right. Um, all the United Princes of Germany and Europe, anyway, were against the the radical character of the French right. Revolution after they executed the king. 
and so that 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 process of mobilizing their troops persisted through the Revolutionary Wars. Through the Revolutionary Wars, right. And and what brings an end to this is uh, 1806, Napoleon with 250, 300,000 troops invades Germany. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically the Hessian army ends up, I mean, they, they have some discussions about this. They end up capitulating rather than meeting the French in the field. Because when you have a standing army of 24,000 opposing, yeah. you know, the Grand Armée marching into your lands, uh, there's no point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, uh, the the landgrave of hessen Kassel uh, So much for exile. Sparta, huh? Come on. <laughs> right. <laughs> No Thermopylae over the... Uh... Well, it's the more humanitarian thing to do is not to send your, your guys into the maw of the beast yeah, there. Yeah, but yeah, uh-huh. uh, So the, the Landgrave flees to Denmark, uh, takes yeah. most of his treasury with him, mm. uh, several of his generals, uh, and the people who stay behind in hessen Kassel, I mean, they, they get incorporated into this new kingdom of Westphalia that, yeah. that Napoleon gives to his brother. Right. Um, and for the unfortunate people living in Hessen at this time, they get conscripted into the Westphalian army and droves of them go to die in Russia. In Russia, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so when, when Napoleon gets kicked out of Germany, so it, it wars of uh, German liberation, 1813 to 15, um, or 13 to 14, the Landgrave comes back and uh, he gets a slight promotion in the kind of the reorganization of Germany. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he punishes mm-hmm. some of his officers who were a little too enthusiastic to join Napoleon's army. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but after the end of, of the Napoleonic Wars, the soldier trade is pretty much bust. Yeah, um, I mean, you have you have the Congress of Vienna, you have yeah. kind of this new European yeah. atmosphere, and, yeah. and the, the soldier trade is just not a part of that of that equation anymore. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so it's a fantastic story. But let's look at the Revolution, the American Revolution, in a bit more detail now. So, how many troops? You said thirty thousand. How many go back to Europe after the end of the Revolution? Well, I can tell you, since that will be your next question, <laughs> about 5,000 end up staying here. Yeah, in the United uh, and about, States. Uh, here, here in the United States. Yeah. And, and about, uh, about 6,000, give or take, uh, are, 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 die in North America, either mm-hmm. due to sickness, most of them due to sickness, uh, or, or as combat casualties. Were they as evil as the Patriots thought they would be? There are plenty of anecdotes about plunder and, and rape and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, killing, uh, killing your adversaries when probably they were surrendering, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, the, but they are found just as much as the same can be said for the Continental Army, for the British Army. There's actually no evidence that the Hessians were any more or less cruel than any of the other armies involved. Okay. Um, so there is substantial evidence that this was used as propaganda mm-hmm. by, uh, by the Continental Army, by, by the Americans, kind of painting them as these, these foreign elements. What was the uh, standard of leadership amongst the Hessian armies compared to the British armies? So the Hessians, uh, so Hessen Kassel specifically, yeah. uh, had a special arrangement in this treaty that it actually maintained its own chain of command right. yeah. um, for, for its regiments, which is unusual. Um, the other states were kind of were put under English. They had command. to be. They were smaller, sure. right? Yeah, yeah. And they're mixed together. Yeah. And so uh, it's kind of an interesting story in terms of the, the, the leadership there and how they worked with their British counterparts. Yeah. Um, the British were very enthusiastic about their their Hessian allies early in the war, mm. Battle of Long Island, uh, you yeah. know, Harlem Heights, Fort Washington. This was all, uh, you know, the Hessians performed very well. Uh, Fort Washington, actually, when it's captured, is renamed Fort Knipphausen for the general, the Hessian general who led the uh, the attack from the north. That's right. Um, yep. But of course, Trenton changes a lot of that, and so you have all these these letters pouring out about how great the Hessians are. And as soon as Trenton happens, uh, yeah. William Howe is writing back. You know, I never trusted these guys. Uh, <laughs> can't put them in charge of anything. So, so I remember. So back in the day when I knew you at Binghamton University, you worked on the Battle of Trenton. I think mm-hmm. in the in the impact that it had. 
where where are you at now when you're thinking about uh, the battle? So Trenton, what what happens in Germany after Trenton? Yeah, Trenton is an interesting an interesting point in that story, um, and it basically it's I mean I, I guess I see it as part of a process of. They weren't drunk, first off. They weren't drunk. They weren't celebrating Christmas. Uh, So they weren't doing a typical German Christmas uh, drunken holiday, right? Well, even if they were, where did those myths emerge? Were they from the moment itself? Was that the British, or or did they come in the nineteenth century? There were some rumors by participants writing their memoirs afterwards that that the Hessians had been kind of drunk at their outposts and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. But there's Mm -hmm. there's no evidence of that from from the Hessian side. And in fact, I mean the kind of the element of surprise. in, in that sense has been overplayed. Yeah. I mean, absolutely, yeah. they, they surprised yeah. them and they, you know, they crossed the Delaware and it's 2,400 troops. But they'd been warned, I mean, they'd been warned this could happen too, right? They'd been warned this could happen. They had although, their uh, people out. Right. They had sentries out. But General was Grant told them not to worry about it. So yeah. there, there was that. Um, yeah. But yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Americans ran into, the, the Hessians had outposts stationed and they ran into the outposts and overwhelmed them. Yeah. And by the time the Americans reach Trenton, the, the regiments are actually assembled for battle. Right. I mean, they're ready to go, they have the cannons lined up, yeah. Um, but they, they just stood no chance. I mean, you had 900 facing 2,400, and they were surrounded. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you really quickly, um, they also had the bad luck that their officers were on, on, on horseback and very easy targets. And so the, uh, the commander of Trenton and his, and his executive officer both get killed very early yes. in the battle, right. or at least mortally wounded Colonel such that they Raul, can't, uh, right. Right. They can't um, lead the battle anymore. And so things kind of fall apart from there, and the regiments uh, surrender yeah. pretty quickly. The American officers were on horseback, too. Washington was on a horse. They were uh, in the trees, largely. Oh, well, well, <laughs> it could have been harder to see. Perhaps. <laughs> we weren't there. We don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but, it, uh, but, but then there's a, but there's a big investigation, right, <laughs> in, in, um, in Germany yeah. about that, what happened at Trenton. Right. Well, what's interesting about that, there's a big uh, court martial that lasts for years, um, and yeah. it's actually it's very comprehensive. So they're, they're interviewing well, Great uh, for you, because you've got great documents. Oh, yeah, the, the, yeah, that's really, it's a treasure trove. Um, and yeah. they're, they're even interviewing uh, common soldiers, and they have a specific set of questions. They're ask, asking each of them about you know, which regiment was where and who was doing what. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's actually a really great record. But what's interesting about the court martial is that there's never any question that they should have won the battle. Mm, right. Um, so right. to the Hessians, it's clear well, American, this was yeah. a you were going American to lose mob. this position. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. you you were you were understaffed and you're you know in a forward post that never should have been occupied. Um, so they criticized the British for sending. Oh, I see. I see what you're saying. So there was never the question wasn't why did you lose the battle. Right. It's sort of like what happened. Right. The question what? was more about why didn't you organize a retreat properly? I see. Yeah. Why did you allow yourself? How did you to have captured? to surrender? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because exactly. that's the difference between losing and surrendering are very different things. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So there was never any yeah. n- never any assumption that the Hessians should have somehow pulled a victory out of Trenton, but rather that they, right. that their defeat should not have involved all of the regiments getting captured. Yes. So there was a lot of recrimination about the about the British. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were very unhappy with with British mm-hmm. leadership about that decision. Um, which is interesting because the British themselves are, are pretty critical of that of that setup, the Winter Quarters in, in 76. Yeah. I mean, that was a, a very thinly yeah. uh, structured line there, uh, and, and quite a few of the British officers thought that this was this was ill-advised. Well, they, Washington probably ordered the burning of New York on their retreat, so there was nowhere to put people. Right. You had to kind of scatter them around New Jersey to forage and... Right. Well, and a big concern was kind of staying on Washington's heels as much as possible, kind of keep the pressure on the Continentals. Um, And little did they know that in in that process, they were really setting themselves up for this for this attack. So um, I guess the the general public, the American public, even historians of the revolution who aren't experts on the war, the Hessians, they know 
in, in terms of their service and the different campaigns. They know, they know the, the Hessians in Long Island. They know the, the Hessians in, in Manhattan. They know about Trenton, obviously. But, but after that, it, it's sort of like, mm, yeah, what happens? Where are the Hessians? Where are their great successes? Where are their failures? So they're posted uh, for 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 the for the duration of the war. They're posted all over the place. There's yeah, I mean Hessian... they must be everywhere if they're right. that big a portion of the yeah. British force. No, there's Hessian regiments and garrisons in in Canada, in Rhode in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. uh, they stay a bunch of them stay in New York City to, to occupy there, mm -hmm. um, and quite a few of them go go south uh, for the yeah. for the campaign in Virginia. A number um, surrender at Yorktown. A number do surrender in yeah. Yorktown. Yeah, because I think some of the uh, some of the standards still exist. Mm -hmm. Some Hessian regiments. Have you seen any of those? I have not. No. Uh, I think there's some at uh, at West Point. Yes, I've heard that uh, in the museum there, um, but I haven't had a chance to go see. Oh well, you need to do that. I need to I do that. You got <laughs> historians that you have to experience the material culture. Right. Well, I saw some stuff in Germany. <laughs> and you've walked to the ground of these battlefields, right? Um, a couple. Well, the Washington Crossing, of course, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. took an opportunity there. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, as you know, for a lot of these things, I mean, the places where most of the fighting took place are these little skirmishes. Uh, yeah, and yeah. it just. You can't well, you've, go been, there anymore. you've been to New York City, haven't you? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just like that. Exactly. Yeah. Poor Washington, you can see it in the yeah. distance. Yeah. Uh, that's great. Yeah. So, who are some of your favorite uh, Hessians that you've gotten to know through your research? You know that you you don't yeah. think people know the, the right story or know enough about them. That's. I mean, that's the great thing about working on these Hessians. There's quite a few characters that are kind of fun to write about. Yeah. Um, so the Landgrave is one of them. So the, the head honcho in Hessen Hessen Castle. Yeah. Is, is an interesting character. Uh, he served in the Prussian army in the Seven Years' War. Mm. Um, he married one of the daughters of George II, and so you have that connection between mm. Britain and mm. Hessen Castle there. But uh, he basically sets off, I mean, it's a major embarrassment and a, and a minor succession crisis because he secretly converts to Catholicism. Oh, he does? And this was a, this was a big deal, um, and yeah. his father is really upset by this news. Um, yeah. And so they actually... Uh, oh, so they, they actually end up splitting the Hessian state in two, in order to uh, make sure that at least a portion of Hessen uh, maintains a, a Protestant prince. And so the, the, uh, the Landgrave, so, uh, you know, uh, Friedrich II's father, who is still the reigning Landgrave during the Seven Years' War, uh, gives a portion of his lands to his grandson uh, to inherit on his death, rather than his son, uh, just to make sure that there's, that there's a Protestant prince in Hessen somewhere. Mm. Um, and so it ends up being, I mean, there's a lot of alarmist stuff being published at the time about this conversion. Um, and it ends up being, uh, in practice, not that big a deal. I mean, he still respects the laws of religious toleration. In fact, he's really adamant about them. Yeah. Um, and it's really this kind of this one-off oddity because once his once he dies and his son inherits all of Hessen again, it's back to being Protestant. And yeah. uh, there's no evidence that he tried to use his position as a Catholic prince to kind of influence the confessionalization of his of his state. Um, but so he's an interesting character. Yeah, he's an interesting character. So, so Andrew O'Shaughnessy's recently published his book, The Men Who Lost America. And obviously, it looks at the British strategic leaders, you know, who were involved there. Do the Hessians have any uh, any leadership to blame for uh, for losing the American Revolution, or are they they so dependent upon the British political and military strategy that essentially they're just a tool that's used uh, poorly? I think the, the 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 second thing you said is is yeah. very is very much true for the Hessians. Um, they do have their, their first commander in the New World uh, is recalled after Trenton. And he had some serious problems getting along with his British counterparts. Yeah, I mean that that would be the biggest question. Sort of like, mm -hmm. how did they work together? Yeah, 
you know, and who was to blame there. So, it, I mean, it's an interesting mix of personalities. Yeah. As you know, the British generals, I mean, there were some, some characters there. Yeah. Um, and for the Hessians, I mean, the guy who, who, gets, uh, who gets tapped for command is, is, a, is 60 years old in 1776. So he's a relatively old guy. Uh, he's basically called out of retirement to lead these troops. And he's immediately accused by the British of kind of being too, too hesitant, too careful, uh, too ponderous uh, in mm. his advances, yeah. um, and it's uh, his his second in command, Knuphausen, who takes over after he's recalled, and he he's much more dynamic, and he gets along well with with his British counterparts. Mm, mm-hmm. um, but really, where I see kind of the most uh, uh, the most talented Hessian officers is at the lower ranks, mm. um, and the best example there, and he, he's actually quite well known, is, is Johann Ewald. Yes, um, because of his journal. Because right? of his journal, yeah. right, and that was published in, in the 70s, um, mm-hmm. and it's really, I mean, a treasure trove for early Americanists, too. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's an interesting character. He's, uh, I mean, he was the one-eyed Hessian captain. Uh, he lost an eye in a duel before the war. Mm. Um, who's, ri- who's written the great biography of him? No one. No. Well, that sounds like an opportunity there is, for a there young is one scholar the on the make. Oh, there is. There is one in the works in, in Germany. Someone's working on him uh, um, mm-hmm. because he ends up he, he ends up having an interesting career. Uh, yeah. He goes back to, to Germany and uh, he enters Danish service and he's he's a lieutenant general in the Danish army during the Napoleonic Wars. Oh, is that right? Uh. Um, but he also, I mean, he's he's interesting. I'm actually writing a, a conference paper about this right now. Mm. Uh, he writes a lot of military treatises based on his experiences in America. He does, yeah. And, uh, is it about petite guerre or things like that? Exactly. It's about you know yeah. like the little war and yeah. I mean the revolution in light infantry that you're getting really mm-hmm. from the Seven Years' War in America through uh, through the revolution is really it must be a transformation in thinking about the, that potential. Well, what's interesting about it is that actually, for the most part, European military thinkers are interested in these American examples, but they really kind of treat it as as this kind of this theoretical abstract for, Mm. you know, this is for something that happens over there. This is not applicable to Europe. And so a lot of these reviews being written about these works, they say, yeah, this is nothing new. It's just, you know, it's new examples, but this is not really helpful. Um, It's interesting. I don't know, maybe this is even apocryphal, but I think it wasn't it. Uh, Bismarck, who said about the American Civil War, what are we going to learn from two armed mobs? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> this notion that, you know, it's going on over here, it's sort of like playtime. Yeah. It's not really real war yeah, and Freddie, done properly. Frederick the Great famously said, yeah. you know, these guys are coming back from America and they think they've learned so much, but all they have to do is relearn everything once they come back to Europe. Mm, mm, and it's kind yeah. of this, this yeah. kind of this arrogance of the, the European sure. military thinkers yeah. that really. Uh, is a disservice to their own military system. Well, it's like this is the JV team over here, right? <laughs> it's sort of like, yeah, these right. provincials are, they're muddling around, and there's some good examples of some valor, perhaps, but, right. you know, when it comes to the real science of warfare, you know, give so, me a, a Frenchman, uh, you know, anything. Exactly. Right. So that's what I'm writing about right now. And, I mean, that'll make its way into the dissertation. But actually, there is yeah. something new happening here, but that mm. just from the paradigm that the Europeans are working from, they don't recognize it as something new. Yeah, and I, I think the Civil War is a similar uh, conundrum because by the end of the Civil War, when you've got you know big trenches all around and huge trench warfare around Petersburg and and the mass killing that you see, the death toll in actual combat that's going to be mirrored in World War One and, and other things, you know, it's there are some things that could have been learned. Yeah, absolutely. And especially, I mean, so the Napoleonic Wars, you have uh, wars of occup- where you have a French occupation and you have lots of insurrections happening. Maybe they should have paid attention to what Hessians had to say about fighting insurrections. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, what is the, your biggest challenge right now? You're in the midst of your projects. I know there's a lot of things in motion. Uh, wh- where do you feel the most confused? What is, what is a, a, a dilemma you're trying to, to figure out? 
I mean, obviously the biggest kind of technical challenge is this, the access to the sources. Mm. Um, but in terms of actually, a, I mean, the biggest challenge in terms of the, the writing and the structure here is, is simply the wealth of, of sources that have survived. Mm. Uh, that's something I didn't anticipate when I started this project. I was kind of coming from... That's, well, a, that's a good problem to have, though. That's a good problem it? to have. Think yeah, about your brethren who write on the 20th century. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> the problem is way too many sources. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's, it's been an interesting problem that I, that I didn't anticipate is that actually so much has survived um, and, and there have been so so few people. I mean, it's actually, it ends up being an interesting historiographical uh, yeah. realm to work in is that at this point, the few people who work on Hessians, I mean, there's really no animosity. There's no, you know, there's no great questions that are being torn back and forth. I mean, it's really, it's a cooperative effort to kind of yeah. wrap our collective minds around what was happening here. Yeah. Because um, there is just such a wealth of information and, and so little has been done really. Well, uh, you know, it's a great project, and it strikes me, though, that, you know, there's the academic project, which is about modernization, state formation, uh, you know, it's a big, and it's a big story about war and society. Um, I, I think there's a popular history there, too, that, you know, that you have particularly the training to, to do well. You know, a lot of the, his, the history I've read about Hessians as antiquarian in nature, you know, it, it's more about recovering detail than helping us really see stories or even understand the broader picture, you know. So I definitely, uh, you know, hope you continue to work on the in in the field. There was some great potential there, and uh, Hessians were were very uh, very prolific, yeah. and a lot of the lower ranking officers as well. They were writing public letters back, or yeah. uh, you know, that sort of thing. And and it's it's kind of interesting, also, kind of in terms of those little stories that people would be interested in. Where I think yeah. you know, you're right, there is a lot of uh, a lot of attractiveness there. Is Try, them trying to wrap their heads around what is happening in North yeah. America, kind of the political and social realities of of colonial America. It's it's a it's a conundrum to these these yeah. Hessian observers. Well, so a lot of Hessians stay, as you said. Was was there a challenge to desertion? Was there a lot of desertion going on, like running off to marry a German woman in Pennsylvania? Or I mean, did that happen? What do we know? Uh, actually, in terms of marriage certificates, uh, so there's a lot of people who end up marrying uh, American women. Uh, yeah. Quite a few of them are kind of from Dutch families in New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, so a lot of it is more uh, kind of where these, these Hessian regiments are, are garrisoned for a yeah. while. where they Over longer periods of time. Exactly. Sure. So they end yeah. up marrying Canadians and, and mm -hmm. New Yorkers. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the pressure to des desertion, it's actually relatively low, especially early on in the conflict. And it only goes up later when you think, okay, that, that might make sense in terms of the you know, fortunes of the war yeah. kind of changing. Yeah. Um, but actually, it, it's more, evidence seems to suggest it's more the replacement troops uh, who are the, the, the cause of this rising desertion. Mm. Um, and there's, there's some evidence that a lot of people are kind of uh, getting, uh, uh, actively pursuing recruitment in, in these replacement troops specifically to get free ride mm. to the New World. Yeah. Because um, that obviously would have been a very expensive prospect otherwise. Yeah, um, and right. so you have these replacements who are coming in with relatively little combat experience who are, the, right. who are the first to desert. Yeah, they're not part of those regiments. They're not, they're not in the same way. They're not right. part of the community, the family of the, of the regiment that's been around for a long time. Interesting. Uh, how many people die in, uh, in the war from the disease or uh, wounds? It ends up being about about six thousand. Yeah, um, and most of that, of course, is disease. Yeah, that's that's high of thirty thousand. Yeah, that's that's. And so you have five or six thousand who don't go back, five or six thousand that die, mm -hmm. but a third of the troops that are that were sent don't go back to Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's not a political outcome from that. So for the as far as we can tell, there's really there's really no 
no, no discernible. This is impact. an absolutist society. It's an absolutist. Society. There's no Absolutely. free press. There's no popular opinion mobilized. No, right. But they do have because just by the virtue of being a, a small German state. I mean, there are political mechanisms there that are more representative than an absolutist state, say like in France. Uh, right. So there, there, there is there is a good measure of. I mean, they're trying to maintain cordial relations with the subject as of much course, as possible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of, I mean, there, there's such a financial windfall from this experiment here, or from this from this expedition. Yeah. Um, I mean, taxes are lowered, and I mean, there's all kinds of concessions made to these Hessian families that actually there's, there's an advantage there for, for yeah. the common people. So it's not seen as a disaster in any way. It's seen as an opportunity, and the and it's right. It's institutionalized. I mean, surely for the families of those six thousand, this was a big deal and not not a great opportunity. More than uh, six thousand of the ones who died. I mean, the ones, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's. Uh, uh, clearly, clearly, there's a, there's that story too, or of the veterans who return and who are permanently maimed, or you know otherwise, uh, you know disfigured or or unable to you know go back to their jobs at the end of the war. Now, does That's the memory the, the memory that evolves in the 19th century is that is that what's being kind of reified in the history in the scientific history, or is it being invented in the in, with these historians? No, it absolutely. This is something that happens that happens uh, during uh, during the American expedition already. Okay. Uh, there's a lot of popular outcry against the system coming from other states. Okay. So right. Frederick the Great so is it's famous. A propaganda challenge. Right. Exactly. So Frederick the Great was famous for saying, you know, it's these these petty princes selling the blood of their people, and uh, Friedrich Schiller, the the, the famous uh, playwright, he yeah. writes. Uh, yeah, he ends up writing a play about mm -hmm. uh, you know that's very critical of the mercenary system, and there's some yeah. other yeah. early nineteenth century poets who who take up. So that there's a, a there's a literary tradition mm -hmm. and a popular sort of nationalist tradition that does emerge that's critical. It's very critical. But from right. your perspective, you're not seeing that within the actual states themselves. Right. But to yeah. be fair, I mean, I'm more interested in these questions of, of reform and setting up this military system. And so there, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a concerted effort to kind of, that the veterans who come back are, are active participants in making sure that this military system is efficient and ready to go for the next conflict. Well, Chris, this has been really enjoyable. I could go on and on. Uh, we've already filled up uh, 50 minutes, so we're going to have to bring it to an end but uh you know congratulations on finding a really important topic on having the chops to get it done i think it, it's going to be exciting to see the dissertation is called chasing fabius the revolutionary army of hessen cassell and its mission in america 1776 to 1784 and uh I, you know best of luck to you you've been a great fellow here talk a little bit about the fellowship here what what specifically have been you've been able to to do during the month you've been here yeah, it's been a, a great honor to be here, and uh, as any fellow can attest, the I mean the facilities are are fantastic. Uh, it's really it's a, it's a pleasure to work here, um, and what's really allowed me to do is uh, to to be here in the, in, the, in this library with all these papers is really get at the American angle. I mean, so mm. much of this needs mm. to be needs to be explored in a comparative lens, yeah. um, and to kind of see how the Americans are reacting, especially early on when the Hessians are first arriving. Yeah. Uh, the you know the battles of Long Island and, and New York and New Jersey. Um, and so I really had a chance this month to dive into Washington's papers and Nathaniel yeah. Green's papers and really take a look at, at, at what was happening there on the American side. Yeah, sort of what they thought was going on and where they thought people were. And, right. and so uh, we'll, we'll end with Washington. We must uh, talk about Washington. What was the Hessian officer's opinion of Washington? How did it evolve over time? Uh, and, and what do we know about it and, and vice versa? Of course, a lot of commentary on Washington. A lot of German language newspapers published in Philadelphia that were very critical of, of Washington and, and uh, the, the American Revolution. American. 
Right, exactly. Um, but the Hessians themselves, it's interesting, is, I mean, for the most part, Washington is this, this mythical enemy that keeps eluding them. Mm. Um, and the only time that they, that they encounter him is, is either in captivity or in peace at the end of the war. Mm. Um, and without fail, every count that I found of a Hessian who actually got to meet Washington, there's quite a few, they're very impressed by him. Mm. Um, they're impressed by, by, his, by him kind of personally and, and militarily. Um, and so he's, I mean, he's, he's, you know, a relatively imposing guy and uh, mm. he, he's a military professional. He's, he's clearly, he's very European in his attitudes mm. uh, in terms of military professionalism. Right. And so he, yeah. he speaks in terms of his etiquette and, and, and military terms. I mean, he speaks a language that the Hessians understand. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so this is someone, I mean, compared to, you know, Israel Putnam or Nathaniel Green, this right. is someone that they can see as an equal. Right. Um, and so you have a lot of Hessians commenting on, on, you know, what an honor it was to meet this man and, and how honorable he behaved towards, towards his enemies. So he makes all kinds of concessions for the Hessian prisoners. Mm. Um, he invites officers to dine with him. Mm -hmm. um, and at the end of the war, there's, there's a couple of them who end up staying longer in America before returning to Germany, specifically so they can travel to Philadelphia and try to meet Washington. And then he come to Mount Vernon after he's... Not know, that I've been they, able to they, find. They're not around that long. I, I did find, I mean, there's one reference I found where Washington apparently invited one of them to, to dine with him at Mount, Mount Vernon, mm -hmm. but the guy mm -hmm. declined because he had to be on his way. Well, you've dined at Mount Vernon plenty. I've seen <laughs> it, uh, and you're taking advantage. It's good. We love to see the fellows here and doing such great work and exciting work, and, uh, and uh, this won't be the last time we talk, Chris, I'm sure, so good luck uh, with everything, and uh, thanks for joining us today. All right, thank you. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion. The Washington Library looks forward to continuing these conversations about our early American history. Please visit mountvernon.org forward slash library to learn more about the library's resources and programs. And remember, Mount Vernon is open 365 days a year and looks forward to welcoming you. Thank you and we'll see you next week.